Welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast, where we feature conversations with entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists. Well, welcome back to the Agents of Innovation podcast. I am your host, Francisco Gonzalez, and I'm back in one of my favorite places in the world, Guatemala City. And I'm here with Fernando Pontaza. He is the co-founder and managing general partner of Inveriantes, which is the first venture capital fund in Guatemala, founded in 2015. Fernando, welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And uh, I hope uh, this is not a letdown after you had Mike Gibson last week and I'm following his, uh, his footsteps. That's a big shoes to fill, but I'll do my best. Yeah, and actually, just to clarify for the audience, um, I was here at the Universidad Francisco Marroquin for the last month, where this was actually the fourth time I've taught a course here um, in Guatemala at UFM, a wonderful place, and a, a course on entrepreneurship and innovation. I got wind that Michael Gibson and Zach Slayback were going to be in Guatemala with their 1517 fund, and so I invited Michael to speak to my class, mm -hmm. and he said, yeah, I'll do it. Then I said, well, can I, can I get more students uh, and professors uh, on campus to, to, get, to take advantage of this great opportunity to have Michael here? So we opened it up to more people, and I actually did a conversation where I sat down with Michael and, and Fernando, you were there for that. That was actually not for the podcast, although I'm trying to get a recording of it, so stay tuned. Maybe we'll, we'll, we'll be able to promote that in another way. But I did have Michael on my podcast in the very end of 2018. Uh, it was episode 51, and another cool thing was the reason, well, the reason I met Michael was because of my friend Zach Slayback. Nice. And Zach, you know, he and I have been friends, I don't know, six, seven, eight years now. Uh, the very first episode of this podcast featured Isaac Morehouse, mm -hmm. and Isaac's a good friend. He was really somebody who I went to to ask him the idea of starting a podcast, what he thought about it. He encouraged me. Uh, some other period later, he introduced me to Zach, uh, unrelated to the podcast, and uh, to have Zach speak at an event that I was looking for a speaker for. And um, but a couple years later, Zach and I had a podcast interview. I believe it was it was somewhere like episode thirty something. I can't remember, but it was in the early part of 2018. And then later, he went to work for the 1517 Fund and said, "Hey, you should have uh, our co-founder uh, Michael Gibson on. He'd be great." So Michael and I had only met via the podcast, uh, actually over a over a Skype call or something, or some kind of conference call line. So last week in Guatemala was the first time we met in person. So pretty cool. Well, a perfect setting for it. Yeah. So, but um, in the process of meeting Michael and and hearing more about him, you know, I was actually listening to an audible version of his book, uh, his new book called Paper Belt on Fire, and I was about halfway through it, and I heard this name. Inveriantes, he said there was this venture capital fund in Guatemala uh, founded by this guy, Fernando Pontaza, who also was affiliated. Co-founded. Co-founded. Co-founded <laughs> by Fernando Pontaza, who was, who was uh, affiliated with this school in Guatemala for Francisco American. And I was like, what? So anyway, I'm so glad we get to meet. And so 
I first learned about you in a book and like we're only like a month later after me reading that book and here, here I am sitting down with you on the podcast. Yeah, I, we joke with Mike that uh, if the book ever turns into a movie, I get to pick who's going to play me <laughs> <laughs> or make the cameo because I'm a small role in that story. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, you know, it's a, uh, what a journey from, from 2015 when we started with the idea of starting a venture capital fund to now hosting them and the whole 1517 fund crew here and meeting you and uh, just it's a non-stop recurring series of events that uh, that keep happening uh, but it all stems back to to starting that fund and venture capital in general yeah and for those who uh, might be listening and I've, you, you've heard me now um, mention the 1517 fund the 1517 fund was sort of an evolution from the Thiel Fellowship. So mm -hmm. Peter Thiel created this fellowship program. Michael Gibson was the vice president of grants, kind of ran the program. It was They gave $100,000 grants to young people under 20, and I think now it goes up to 22. Mm -hmm. And after Michael and his uh, colleague Danielle were working there for about five years with Peter Thiel, they said, you know, it would be great if we could expand this to a venture, to reach more people. And they came up with the idea of having a venture capital fund that invest in the same kind of demographic, the same young people who are starting companies, maybe skipping college or leaving college to do so, and not letting college get in the way of their entrepreneurial venture. So as they started in 2015, somehow you learned about them. Can you tell me the story of how you learned about them and how you got involved with with uh, with fifteen seventeen vote and also co-founding Inveriantes. Yeah, sure, and and um, uh, I guess uh, the, the the fellowship uh, that Mike and Daniel ran is uh, Peter Thiel's own critique against the college system. That, that in the United States you need to get that piece of paper to save your your career uh, and get two three hundred thousand dollars in debt to do so. Uh, ironically, in my case, college did give me something uh, that dramatically changed my life, which is the fact that back in 2009, they gave Peter Thiel an honorary doctorate, and that uh, created a bond between the, the university and, and Peter Thiel. Uh, and I guess... That's UFM. That's UFM, yeah. of course. Uh, a rarity in itself, because it's a college anchored on Austrian economic principles, uh, nested here in Guatemala City, uh, which is even rarer now that Latin America is swinging the opposite direction. Um, but um, thanks to that, um, when we started having thoughts about starting a venture capital fund with my partner, uh, back then it was um, uh, Juan de Dios Aguilar, and he uh, still owns a, and operates a multifamily office in investing in multiple asset classes. And uh, I worked at that multifamily office uh, at that time, still do part-time, but um, we saw a need, you know, a, a gap that needed to be filled. And that was to, uh, people wanted access to the asset class of venture capital. Uh, Latin Americans are uh, traditionally in love with fixed income or real estate, and that's about as far as what options they consider to manage their, their wealth. Uh, but as success cases started to manifest themselves, uh, let alone uh, Luis Bonan, who, who's a Guatemalan, uh, who then, uh, after living here, uh, went to the States, started a couple of companies, but more um, uh, bigger than before Duolingo, which now trades oh. publicly, uh, you know, people started to, to 
you know, considered the thought, how can I capture the next Luis? Uh, how can I do this? And we said, okay, this is maybe we can leverage on our knowledge of investing and the fact that we had already by then, uh, by 2015, invested in some funds, VC funds and some direct deals uh, and, uh, and give people access to the asset class. By the same token, founders were knocking on our door looking for founding because there was no venture capital fund in, in, in the country. There were some uh, venture capitalists, but maybe groups that did it, um, uh, you know, under like a deal club for their friends, etc. Not, not a venture capital fund per se, where you raise money from limited partners, they make a commitment and you call upon their capital commitment as you find the deals that you're going to invest in. So um, uh, through Giancarlo Ibarwen, who was the dean of the whole Universidad Francisco Marroquín for many years, uh, uh, and Helmut Chavez, who ran the business school of Universidad Francisco Marroquín, uh, we got wind of uh, the Teal Fellowship because Helmut was a mentor there. And he said, come and look at what these guys are doing in San Francisco with their program. Maybe we can incorporate some of the best practices and uh, and uh, use that to develop Guatemala's own ecosystem. Serendipitously, what ended up happening is that we went to, uh, to that Teal Summit and we met Mike and Daniel. And at that precise moment in time, they were letting go of the uh, reins of the Teal Fellowship and started 1517 Fund to, um, to, to invest in the ecosystem that they had created during those four years running the fellowship. Uh, out of those 80 fellows, um, uh, 36 of them by, by that time uh, had started companies and that wasn't even part of uh, the mandate of the fellowship, but it happened organically. And among them were uh, people with the likes of Vitalik Buterin, who created Ethereum, the second largest cryptocurrency in the world. Uh, Austin Russell, who, who uh, was midway through uh, Luminar, which now trades publicly, and uh, Ritesh Arwal, uh, the founder of uh, Oil Rooms, the uh, Airbnb of India. So they said, we can't uh, invest in them because uh, we're a nonprofit. Let's start a fund. And so they did at the precise moment we met them, and it sparked a concept in our mind that we should uh, do a hybrid model. We should invest in them, not only use the and, and, and learn from their um, uh, best practices, but invest in them half of our portfolio, which in a way, uh, investing in other funds diversifies your risk profile uh, as you are instantly uh, uh, spreading your investment in 30, 40, or now, uh, fast forward to, to our current vintage in about 14 venture capital funds in hundreds of companies. But you can also uh, uh, you know, have deal flow coming from them or companies that you find yourself in your own pipeline, you can lead towards those funds for their next rounds or when they decide to cross borders and go into the States. And so we did. We we ended up uh, investing shortly thereafter on 1517. It was our first ticket. And uh, uh, that's when our journey as venture capitalists started with that uh, hybrid fund where we invest half of our capital in other funds, half in direct tickets. And that's a long-winded answer to, to how uh, it all started for us. Yeah, no, that's a great answer and a great story and how you guys aligned with 1517 Fund and then invested in them. So it's interesting. So for those listening who may or may not be uh, so educated maybe on the, the, what venture capital is, 
so first of all, I, I love how you also use the term ecosystem because I really do think there is this entrepreneurship ecosystem that uh, venture capital funds feed as well, but you know, it's just the way entrepreneurs work and help each other as well. And, and maybe in, you know, how investors come along, right? So entrepreneurs need capital to get started. And some will just bootstrap their companies, some will take loans, some will, you know, uh, by, through the bootstrapping, maybe rely on savings, things like that. Maybe they, they started as a side hustle on top of working for somebody else. But one other thing uh, is also venture capital. I had on my podcast back on episode 96, a, a man named Michael Eisenberg. Uh, Michael is one of the leading venture capitalists in Israel, and he's the general partner for a, a fund called Aleph, A-L-E-P-H. And on the podcast, um, he actually said, the role of venture capital is to provide capital for some of the most ambitious projects out there, stuff that normal financial instruments don't fund. At the same time, it's to help the entrepreneur build a company, build the management, find talent, build a network that helps the entrepreneur because we're in this iterative game, meaning we fund a lot of companies and the entrepreneur has a singular focus. Um, one of the other things he cited was one of his business partners, uh, Kevin Harvey, who had said that the role of, venture, of the venture capitalist is to lower the mountains and raise the valleys for the entrepreneur because it's a hell of a roller coaster to build a company. So how would you describe the role of venture capital and VC funds? Yeah, I mean, BC funds, we're, we're resource allocators and sometimes, uh, well, for example, in the States, maybe capital or access to it is uh, not uncommon. Uh, as a matter of fact, in uh, the years of late, with all the quantitative easing and money trying to look for more and more risk uh, to find returns, uh, uh, money sort of became a commodity. Uh, but in uh, latitudes like Latin America, it's not uh, so. So, so uh, uh, you know, part, part of what venture capitalists do is allocate resources to companies uh, where according to our criteria each fund has its own it's going to be best served and uh, the likelihood of a company uh, possibly becoming a fund returner meaning maybe you're going to invest in 30 35 companies uh, and one of those has to have enough potential to give you back the entire fund's capital uh, so you try to use your best judgment and and our job is to only invest in companies that have the possibility to do so. But you also become a, 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 a friend, a, a psychological support, a, a source of introductions to potential clients. In our case, being a hybrid fund, we uh, are in contact with a lot of funds and we make high touch introductions between founders and other funds that we know might be investing in such a company at that stage in that geography in that sector and uh, end up helping colleague uh, fund managers as well as portfolio companies and of course uh, whenever we can we give strategic advice and um, and also um, uh, you know help uh, with the specific management decisions and and so on but the one who runs the show is the founder itself we're just support yeah, so the founders of the companies you're investing in. Yes, yeah. correct. So, uh, okay, so this is this has been really great. What I want to do right now, Fernando, is I want to go back uh, and 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 get to Fernando Prontaza's journey here. And so you're a native Guatemalan, or yeah, born and raised in Guatemala born, City. Born and raised. Uh, the only time I've uh, had a chance to live abroad is uh, 
uh, during two years so while I was getting my master's degree. And uh, I hope I don't get too much luck from uh, my 15, 17 friends who don't believe in college. But, but yeah, I, Where did I, you go? Uh, to the Universidad Autónoma de Madrid, who has a business school. And uh, I got a chance to live for about two years in Madrid and uh, study there uh, an MBA because I, I studied systems engineering in college. Mm. Uh, but thanks to Universidad Francisco Marroquín's inclusion of economic principles and human action and, and finance, I got the bug and I said, I want to do that instead of, uh, you know, systems. Uh, but nobody would hire me. They said, ah, well, you're knocking on the doors of a bank. Well, you're a systems guy. We, we don't need a guy like you. So I was almost forced to get an MBA to try to shift the course of my career. Uh, but it ended up being a, a blessing in disguise because that experience uh, gave me a chance to look at the world from another perspective. Like uh, all the way over in, in Madrid, people think, act, uh, live differently. And um, I got a chance to work at a bank there, uh, uh, the BBBA bank uh, at a paid internship, which then when I came back to Guatemala, opened the doors for me to work at a local bank uh, and after uh, you know it was a, also a great experience great people uh, owned and, and, and ran that bank uh, but it was kind of a monotonous you know day to day because uh, you have to fit within the structures of the banking world uh, and uh, right about that time when I was uh, fed up um, a scout talent where I had left my resume about uh, three years earlier gave me a call out of the blue that somebody was looking for some guy who liked stocks and, and that ended up being Juan de Dios who's my the owner of the family office uh, came over uh, and uh, started uh, working at that uh, multifamily office you know helping manage the multi-asset portfolio which then allowed me to zero in within the asset classes into private equity under that umbrella into venture capital and then us starting that fund. So that's a little bit of how my journey went. Well, that's great. Um, well, this is really great. So let me ask you, go even further back, maybe as a kid or something, uh, what was your first job in life? <laughs> uh, I, I guess midway through college, I started working as a Microsoft software salesman. Oh, yeah, wow. that, that was my, my first uh, it, true formal during job during college. Yeah. Yes, that, that was it. Uh, yeah. And what did you learn? Well, I learned uh, how to sell and, and how to grow a thick skin and how to take no's most of the time and also how to articulate a, 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 a sales pitch. Uh, at that time, I guess it was tougher because it wasn't a product that I felt passionate about or that I truly loved like my fund, uh, but I learned nonetheless and it, it turned out to be being useful skills that have served me well across my entire career because uh, as, a, as a venture capitalist, you have to sell yourself to clients, to other fund managers, and to founders. Yeah, you know, it's funny, we're all in sales at some point. Right? Yeah. I mean, you're, you're always having to sell something. Um, something else you said a little bit earlier in this conversation, when you talked about leaving Guatemala for a few years to go to Madrid and to see the world from a different viewpoint. That, you know, that's why I love travel as well, is, is I think it really helps people get, gain different perspectives, you know, meet different people, 
yeah, see that world, get out of the box. I think it's great to come back home though, right? And then you come back home and you're and you're back and you're reinvesting in your country and trying to trying to help that out. But the other thing, Fernando, is I've I've uh, I, I pulled up here to do the podcast at your office at Invariantes, which is right here in Zone Ten in Guatemala City. We're really close to Plaza Fontabella over here, uh, really close to where I'm living, really close to UFM. So pretty cool um, location. But um, you have a lot of amazing quotes, even on the coffee mugs and everything. And right behind us here, we we decided to do this here. This is a wonderful quote by Winston Churchill. Courage is what it takes to stand up and speak. Courage is also what it takes to sit down and listen. So I thought, well, it's great to sit down and listen to a podcast. And also for those who might be listening on, say, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, uh, we've got my my one of my former students here, Luis, who is uh, actually filming this so that it can go up on YouTube. So if you're just listening, check out the Agents of Innovation channel on YouTube as well to do that. But Fernando, I wanted to get back to the... Um, uh, the importance of a mindset, because I think you're talking about travel, you talked about sales and all these amazing uh, motivational quotes around your office uh, and even on your coffee mugs. Uh, it seems when I see this, I see here's a person and an, and an organization that really gets that mindset. And can you say a little bit about um, the importance of entrepreneurs building a strong mindset? Well, I mean, um, it's a, a lonely job. Uh, you are facing all the odds against you. I mean, I, depending on who you ask, but let's say out of 10 companies, you probably heard this a thousand times, but uh, half or more fail, uh, two or three do okay, mm -hmm. and uh, one or two of them really do well. So, I mean, uh, taking on those odds as a founder, uh, you know, you gotta admire that. I mean, and the, the, the most likely outcome, it's something that, uh, you know, painfully we're, we're living a not firsthand but through the founders of our first fund as companies now have reached uh, a mature enough point we're seeing all the the companies that are write-offs that are going to zero and uh, it's people that you've grown to know know and and care for th throughout those years and watching them wind down their companies for one reason or another it's, it's devastating but uh, uh, having a strong mindset uh, you know gives you enough confidence to ignore those thoughts and push forward nonetheless and uh, in the end these people these young people uh, creating the new technologies and solutions that may extend our lives that may change the way we work the way we live the way we transport each other are truly the minority that's driving progress forward so uh, you know thank the founders uh, and uh, uh, but for to do that for sure you need to have a very strong mindset and to navigate the hours on end of work sleepless nights and uh, uh, and again it's lonely more so if you're a solo founder and you don't have a co-founder with whom you can navigate all these trials and pivots and, and yeah and i heard you earlier mention that uh from your perspective as the as a venture capital fund, being able to maybe even provide some psychological support for some of the people. Uh, they're not just getting financial investments from you, they're getting a lot of advice and tips and 
uh, and some, some sense of an ecosystem uh, uh, and that maybe psychological support. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It is uh, more than you would imagine. You know, you just uh, an, a reach out, an email. Uh, again, thinking uh, to our good friends from 1517, Danielle, who's Mike's partner, uh, is extremely uh, good at this. Like she has an acute intuition uh, and like to read into the people's mindset and, uh, uh, you know, just identifying if somebody's going through a rough patch uh, and giving support where it's needed. And it's something that we, we try to emulate as well. That's great. So, um, regarding Invariantes here in Guatemala, what, what, are, what kind of people are some of the investors in your fund and what motivates them to, be, to invest? Good question. In our case, uh, our, our reason for existing is giving people access to the asset class. Now, you might have large multi-family conglomerates that probably have access to the sequoias and, and co-2s or, or large venture capital funds of the world. But the high net worth individual, somebody that maybe amassed a, a, some wealth and again has this buckets where he can allocate money outside of his day-to-day, -day, be it real estate, be it a, a deposits in the bank, be in fixed income, maybe some stocks. And um, a, this high net worth individual now wants access, for example, to an alternative asset class like, like uh, a venture capital. The initial tickets are are big, like the, the typical fund that's for a million dollar commitment. You may have that a million dollars that's going to be called over the, the period of three to four years of the investment period. But then you may not want to allocate that a larger chunk of your savings and, and wealth into a risky asset class like BC. And that's where we came in. Like we, we our initial ticket for that first fund, for example, was $25,000. Uh, and it's grown over time as our asset, as our fund size has grown. But at that time, it was probably the first experience most Guatemalans ever had into having the opportunity to invest into a venture capital fund. So was that the at that time was that the minimum that was required yes, to invest twenty five thousand U.S. dollars? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Ironically, uh, the average ticket ended up being many more times larger than that. Thankfully, <laughs> some 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 of those people uh, decided to 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 make larger bets on on the fund, uh, and, uh, and and now even though our minimum ticket has grown, it's still uh, below the usual parameters in the business. So it's still a vehicle that uh, this this high net worth individual can use to diversify his portfolio and to have uh, exposure to something that can produce. A potentially higher returns than, than anything else you can find out there. Yeah, so can you uh, give us some examples of maybe some of the exciting projects that you have invested in? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the obvious case is a, a co-investment that came to us thanks to, once again, our good friends at, at 1517. I guess our stories are so intertwined that it's impossible not to mention it, but it was Luminar. Uh, it was a LiDAR company uh, creating a, 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 an optic sensor for the driverless cars. It distributes uh, a laser uh, into the horizon, um, and uh, that laser bounces back, and much like a radar, a, a receptor a, gets that wavelength and the shift creates uh, a, a 
vision of the world up to about 200 to 300 meters out uh, in real time uh, in 3D. Um, and based on that input, the driverless car navigates. Um, uh, this was again one of the fellows, uh, uh, I think he was, yeah, he was a fellow within the Teal Fellowship and uh, 1517 funded that company and uh, in, in their initial uh, phases, uh, you know, invited us to co-invest, uh, we believed in, in the vision, and we even had a chance to visit the the manufacturing facility and got to see the the, the technology working firsthand. And we decided to to back it. Uh, fast forward to a couple of subsequent uh, investment rounds as the company was growing out of a prototype and into commercial relationships uh, with the likes of uh, Volvo, uh, which then became an investor themselves uh, in Mercedes and Toyota. Uh, it ended up going public uh, in the end of uh, 2020. I think uh, it was uh, December 3rd, 2020, uh, where they went public. and. Um, uh, you know that watching firsthand that journey from 2016 all the way to an IPO in in 2020 g gave you a sense that it was possible. Like you, you could be exposed to one of these mythical cases where a company goes from startup to a unicorn, being a company that's valued over a billion dollars, to an IPO. And six months later, after our uh, holding period was done, uh, we could sell those shares uh, in the public market and we distributed uh, uh, our, our entire fund uh, 1.35 times over to our investors. And we still hold some of those shares, uh, uh, you know, because we believe so much in what the company is doing that we think its true value is yet to be unlocked. But uh, that is for sure the most uh, you know grandiose experience we had yeah. with one of our portfolio companies now where are um your investments located where do you invest geographically good question it's a it's a mix between the us and latin america and maybe we reserve maybe five percent of the fund to uh, other geographies that we're not uh, so uh, present in but that the opportunity warrants us to invest but mainly it's the us and latin america and even within latin america we favor mexico which is a, a latin america's a second largest a venture capital ecosystem and one that we are very close to we are a two-hour flight away from mexico city we always viewed mexico as a guatemala on steroids i mean meaning the culture is similar the business dynamics we have a strong network there and and we have a you know what ends up being a vetted network of trust on which you can rely uh, when you're doing due diligence on founders or or market sizes etc uh, and um, uh, so our investments are maybe about 60 to 70 percent us and the rest in latin america regretfully we had to shift that percentage into latin america a little bit to the downside Again, as all these macro political crises have come to manifest themselves in the past few years, and uh, you get uh, crackpot, uh, almost dictators in company in countries, and you see their currencies devaluate, and uh, to the tune of 25 to 30 percent, and you know it gives you pause because in the end, even though you wanna, you know invest more in Latin America, you still have a fiduciary responsibility to your investors and you go where the investment is uh, safer and sounder. 
Yeah. So uh, a little bit less authoritarian and less uh, <laughs> a less crazy monetary policy might actually uh, welcome in some more investments. Um, so let's go here to Guatemala now. Uh, can you give us some examples of um, some of the exciting or interesting projects you're investing in in Guatemala? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, one uh, company that is uh, a, an, an early investment and that is still out there and probably about to reach a point uh, uh, of inflection uh, is uh, Osigo. They're, uh, and I'm not going to do... I'm doing a disservice to what they do with what I'm saying, but it's automating the process of insurance claims. Uh, and it's all, uh, software is all built uh, and written here in uh, Guatemala. And they are, um, you know, trying to bring that solution not only to the local market, but they cross borders to the Dominican Republic, Mexico, and uh, uh, without getting into the details of a deal that they're working on, it, it could just be that they are, just about that spot where uh, finally they they achieve a, a, a product market fit that allows them to grow exponentially in all these geographies. So that's that's one that uh, we've been a part of their journey uh, from the get go, and uh, one that's still alive. You know, regretfully in Guatemala, the death rate of the companies that we've invested in is extremely high, uh, higher than in other geographies, because uh, because you, you know we mentioned odds against you. In Guatemala, you have even more odds against you becoming a successful founder from the market not being large enough to test your product here locally to a, perhaps even a, a lack of a deep talent pool. If you're looking for, a, you know, you're growing exponentially, you're going to have to grow your, your software code team for, say, you need 10, 20 full stack developers. And a, I mentioned this on a previous podcast recently, but... Uh, uh, not, not in I'm not wanting to be too repetitive, but but there isn't that deep a talent pool, and you perhaps need to outsource some of these components. And when you do that, you become a little bit less agile. And companies where the whole solution is being built in house have an edge on you. So just to name a few uh, disadvantages yeah. uh, that founders face locally. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so it took until 2015. Guatemala to have its first venture capital fund and um, what do you but you but at the same time we could look at it as Guatemala finally has a venture capital fund I don't know if there's been any since uh, but what do you think this says about what do you think this maybe signals about the current or future state of the Guatemalan economy I'm quite optimistic and, and I guess you have to be if you are a venture capitalist because you are, uh, you know, betting on the fact that despite what you hear on the news, uh, there's always uh, some young person with incredible talent developing a new solution that's going to drive all of humanity forward. So, so you turn into an optimist. And I'm an optimist uh, objectively in what's happening in Guatemala and Central America because you see more and more actors uh, participating in the space and uh, indeed there's another fund uh, operating already in uh, Guatemala a, a larger fund even than us uh, you know trying to intersect Europe and Latin America there's other good friends operating in Salvador as well with their own uh, venture capital funds and efforts some in Costa Rica as well and uh, it, it, you see the like the poise and the way founders pitch their uh, startups to you 
way more polished than how it was back in 2015. Uh, so, uh, so only eight years we've seen. It. Yeah, you, yeah. You've seen a big progress in just the way people are pitching. Yes, their yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. You see the likes of uh, the Volcano Summit, which is an event that takes place here every September. You should come, by the way, back September. Yes. All right. We yeah. gotta we gotta come back to in September. Yeah, yeah. Just today, I was talking to to Jangma, the the one of the organizers, and it's an event that brings together like over a thousand five hundred people from all of Latin America. Some great speakers to the likes of uh, the CEO of Hyperloop and people from Singularity University, and you see that once a venture capitalists from abroad are here and they see. Uh, you know the landscape the the, the talent the, the type of people that are here they're willing to take a chance of investing here in the region so I'm, I'm optimistic can you tell about me a little that. bit so by, by the way great name volcano summit yeah. i think there's Fitting. like 39 volcanoes 30, or something. Yeah, 30, 30 volcanoes yeah. in guatemala just i hope my geography teacher yeah I, i'm gonna well, bet on 30 people people uh pe yeah I, I hear a different answer every time i come up with uh, so there's a lot of volcanoes in guatemala especially for how you know relatively small the country is on the on the on the world map, but great name. Um, what was the what? How did this start? Who started it? And what what was the kind of motivation behind it? Yeah, well, you mentioned uh, Israel, and, and this is a story best left to the event organizer. Okay. Uh, but um, if if um, if my uh, my memory serves me right, it started with uh, Yossi Bardi who's uh, an Israeli uh, founder of, um, if I'm not mistaken, with his son ICQ, that old messaging platform from back in the day. Yeah. And he's somewhat considered the godfather of Startup Nation Israel. Uh, and uh, it, the first time he hosted an event, a, a, a version different than his event called Kinernet in Israel, he called it Kinerlat here in Guatemala. It was the first time he ventured out of his of own geography to do one such event. Uh, Yangma managed that uh, event spectacularly, and then it evolved into the Volcano Summit, which has been ongoing uh, for, I think, since 2018, uh, year after year, except through COVID, which when they had it virtually. And uh, it's a really well put together Where does event. It, does it take place uh, Antigua? in Antigua? In Antigua. In Antigua, yeah. Very in cool. Um, well, we'll have to uh, we'll have to come back here in September for the Volcano Summit. I have heard about it from different people, and um, you know, speaking of Guatemala, uh, you know, we have a lot of we have a lot of people. Hopefully, we'll have a lot of people listening and watching here in Guatemala, and um, but we also you know have a have a have a U.S. audience here primarily for this podcast. What can you tell them? What can you tell people what it's like? living and working in Guatemala City in 2023, because I say this, I've brought in more than 40 people to Guatemala in the last two years through various group trips and different friends that have, that have come. And every single person, I think of those 40 plus people, only two or three had, had, had actually been to Guatemala at some point, all the rest, it was brand new. And they said, okay, we'll trust you. The pictures look cool. The more people that come, the more people trust me and want to come. And, and anyway, people get here though, and they're so shocked and it's like, they're shocked because they think, well, they've been told it's unsafe. Um, they don't really know what to expect. I think also there's just not a travel pattern. Maybe a lot more people go to Mexico or Costa Rica or Europe or whatever. 
And finally, it's like, oh, they didn't really think about Guatemala. And they come here, and they're like, oh, cool, the volcanoes, Lake Atitlan, Antigua, um, even Guatemala City. I bring people here first so they can see, look at this big modern city with a lot of great people, a lot of great businesses. So I say, I, I just wanted to preface that, but I wanted to ask you, yeah, what, what would you, what is your sort of um, uh, perspective of what it's like living and working here that you could tell maybe others that don't? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's great. I mean, the, uh, with a uh, low cost of living, you get access, like you said, to, to live in a, in a city that's quite modern, uh, like I, up to par with any other city that I could think of in Latin America, uh, and um, with great options like restaurants readily available. We, we had a lunch in a great friend's restaurant yeah. across the street. It's our, our and uh, a small homely bistro. Uh, a lot of uh, food options. You get perfect weather. You know, it's called the land of the eternal spring. Yes. Uh, it's like the moniker because it's never too hot. It's never too cold. Uh, you are, uh, I mean, two hours flight away from uh, Miami, Houston. Same. Uh, time um, uh, differential from the states. You're in the same same time zone. That is sorry. Uh, you um, you uh, have coasts on both sides. You can drive an hour and a half, and you're in a colonial city, Antigua, where the volcano summit takes place. That uh, was the old capital for the country, and it's a city that remains pretty much how it was in the 1700s, like very colonial. Spanish type architecture. And it was founded in the 1500s. Yes, yeah, yes, so. yes. Yeah, yeah, the, uh, a big earthquake in 1773 did a lot of damage. Plus, plus a, then a, a landslide from one of the volcanoes. It wasn't even an eruption, but a landslide from from uh, one large volcano that had accumulated water on the top uh, caused them to leave that city and finally end up here, uh, where the city, uh, where we are at now, um, uh, 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 is located. But you got that. A option and you got a hour and change away from that a volcano a, a lake surrounded by about seven volcanoes called Lake Atitlan a picture perfect place you got a large Mayan city the largest Mayan city in the north of the country called Petén and all this within a very you know short small landscape so I think our tourism institute it has to be terrible to not be able to market this and put us on par with, like you said, where people go uh, uh, for other options like Costa Rica or, or, or even Mexico. I mean, I think you, you will be well served to come here. It's about as safe as any other Latin American city. You, you've experienced it yourself. Uh, and um, Honestly, let's pause there. Yeah. I think it's as safe as almost any American city, well, U.S. city, point. because I, there's definitely places in the United States I would not rather be. <laughs> I'm not going to name any of them, but you, you guys know what I'm talking about. There's a lot of dangerous spots in a lot of American cities on any given day. And, um, and, I, and, and so <laughs> one of the things, um, and the U.S. State Department is going to hate me, but, you know, the State Department... Uh, you know, they have they, they, the way they talk about other countries, including Guatemala, like on their website to warn Americans. Um, I think this is a PR problem for Guatemala. And maybe maybe there are just not the right incentives in place for them to, you know, t I don't know what the level is at this moment we're speaking. But when I was here in 2021, I had been here about six weeks. I was hanging out on a balcony of a condo building that I was living in. Uh, two blocks away is a beautiful grocery store, La Stacion, Zoltan, yeah. right? Like, 
just I, you know, I, I live life like I live life anywhere else. And I have friends calling me saying, you know, I went to the State Department's website and it lists Guatemala as a level four advisory. I said, what the heck does that mean? And then you start looking at, well, what other places in the world are level four? <laughs> and so, uh, again, I think maybe there was a COVID. Uh, I mean, we weren't quite in 2020, but that might have been why it bumped up to level four. I don't know if it's like level three, but it, this whole thing is absurd to me. Uh, and so I, but that one of the reasons I wanted to ask you what it's like living and working here. We, you know, we don't have to go deep into, into all the, the, what people's perception is, but um, I also want to kind of know like the business environment and, and just working with other, because I, we're, we're here at your office and we're right across the street from a beautiful sort of indoor outdoor mall that could be in Boca Raton, Florida, you know, uh, Plaza Fontabella. And I say Boca Raton for people who know, I mean, it's like a nice, beautiful area of Florida, right? Um, like a nice place where you can shop and dine and maybe once in a while you'll hear some live music around there. And I, I can walk from right there 10 minutes over to a house that I've, I've been renting and it's perfectly fine. Now, should you be walking by yourself at you know 11 o'clock at night you know with uh, maybe something expensive on you? Okay, that, but probably anywhere else in the world, probably not either. But, uh, but in, a, in a course of a day, there seems to be a lot of active businesses. Zone 10, especially where we're at, is uh, very commercial and business friendly. So I'm just curious what it's like. Uh, yeah. In that sense, just working here every day. Yeah, it's it's this, the experience you just described. I mean, uh, uh, you know, we across the street go have a perfect lunch. I was just there before coming over to yeah. you, uh, uh, and uh, um, uh, like you said, if you're you know clever about it, um, it life is, is pretty agreeable. And again, at a very modest cost, uh, um, and um, I guess. Maybe part of the bad rep is maybe not looking at the country as a whole. Mm -hmm. You know, the city is its own particular capsule, which is not representative of the whole rural area of the country or parts of the country where uh, uh, drug dealing, narcotraficantes are operating like uh, Zacapa on, on those parts in the mid uh, east side. Uh, where it is unsafe, and maybe those statistics are the one that drives the um, the the ratings, the way the U.S. treats them. But if you, you know, conduct yourself in areas like here uh, and others uh, within the city, and Antigua, Guatemala, and uh, Lake Atitlan, you'll be perfectly fine, right. and life is pretty agreeable. And and business-wise, I mean, it's also a country where the government has low uh, in intervention if you will or inherence in in the economy that to gdp if i'm not mistaken is about 25 six percent it's not an compared to El salvador that's like 89 percent or something like that the uh, government's role in either the over role in the economy is yeah. minimal the exchange rate has been steady for decades uh, and uh it's luxuries that you can't really find in most any other countries in Latin America, so I, I would definitely, uh, you know, invite you to or, or your listeners to have another look and, and come down and, and visit, and we'll so gladly host you. I've got a follow-up here on this. Um, so, how can others invest in Guatemala? And when I say that, I'd like you to think about two audiences. How can other Guatemalans invest in Guatemala, and and what can they do to empower this country to rise economically? So that's my first part of the question. The second part would be for those outside Guatemala. What ways can outside investors collaborate with you 
and maybe with the people of Guatemala to help people here, um, you know, be empowered to, to help their country develop. Got it. Well, well, as far as locals, again, you're seeing the economy and the financial industry mature. You have now even private equity real estate funds operating locally run by locals investing in local uh, real estate properties you have a uh, um, uh, Guatemalan companies issuing Euroclearable bonds in the international markets uh, that pay for the supposed like risk premium of the country very decent rates uh, uh, that's also an option for outside investors that you mentioned but also for locals um, uh, you know, uh, there's a, a lot of uh, call centers also operating here uh, of high caliber from Telos, that's a publicly traded company from Canada. Um, textile manufacturing, uh, I recall, is our second largest export. Uh, so, you know, maybe you can do something within that particular business sector. Tourism. You know, uh, we mentioned all these natural wonders of the volcanoes and Antigua and Atitlan and coasts in both. Uh, oceans, Pacific and Atlantic, uh, that could be also something that locals can can help proliferate. And uh, uh, as far as people from abroad, uh, you know, there's a lot of gaps to be filled in a lot of industries uh, that have been uh, going back to the call centers. I mean, Telus came and, and, and realized that most of the countries, uh, at least in the city, uh, and people who who operate here are bilingual. Uh, there's a heavy cultural influence from the U.S. towards us, uh, so so it's basically like you're talking to a fellow countryman, uh, and uh, tourists and people from abroad are, are received with open arms, and uh, or you, or you can uh, invest in in variantes. We're, we're still open on our third vintage if anyone's interested. So out, so anybody like outside the country could invest in in variantes. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, and, and you guys also have. You, did you? Is it correct to say you, about half of your investments are in fifteen, seventeen fund? No, no, no. It will, that? It's less. It's okay. less. It's about let's say out of a, out of a thirty million dollar fund, it's about two million. Okay. Uh, the commitment to fifteen, seventeen, and we collaborate in other co investments with them very proactively. But it's not such a uh, a large position that it dominates uh, the the nature of our own strategy. So another question for you here. Um, Regarding the entrepreneurship ecosystem here in Guatemala, what's it like? What are the positive things you're seeing? And also where there's still some um, some needs for some room for improvement in that ecosystem. You got a positive things I'm seeing. I mean, you have areas like uh, uh, the tech, I don't know if you've been to Zone 4, which mm -hmm. is, you know, 4. branding itself. It's a project brought forth by Juan Mini, who's so a close friend and, and, and ally, uh, that he is um, uh, creating uh, um, um, a, a Silicon Valley with beans, he calls it. But it's a, a complex of about four buildings trying to attract exclusively technology tenants, you know, trying to create those spaces here. Uh, again, this type of thing wasn't. Uh, here uh, years ago, and it's now e e existing. So, uh, you know, you, you see that type of stuff. And the second part of your question was... Well, where's there still some need for oh, some room, room, for room, room for improvement? Yeah. Um, well, the rule of law, perhaps, mm. uh, well, without the perhaps, needs work. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the institutions are somewhat debilitated by uh, the... the 
corruption you would expect from any other country in the pub in the you know government sector uh, and uh, and also perhaps influenced in some way or another by all the money uh, flowing from the drug traffic uh, system so so rule of law would be one uh, for sure road infrastructure as well could use some work i mean if you could get from one place to another without having to drive through yet another little town like antigua guatemala every time you go there and it's rush hour it's a nightmare because the it's still unimaginable to me how being such close to the city and what could potentially be a tourism powerhouse you should build a road straight to it and have people come to the city, go there. No, still have to go through a little town eh, and the traffic forms at five o'clock, etc. But infrastructure and roads. It's so funny you say that because I got a friend. I don't want to mention his name right here, but I'm going to send this to him. He's, he's actually just left Guatemala today. He got here last week. He came with another friend. I took him to the lake. We're literally, we, we get to the lake. Um, they, they, they arrive at the airport at like 1230 on a Friday. We get on a shuttle, we get to the lake, and we get there about 4.30 or so. We grab some food. We're staying in another village, Santa Cruz. And so we're, we take some pictures of the sunset by the lake about 5, 5.30. Beautiful. We get on the boat. It's like the last public boat going to Santa Cruz around 5.30. And my friend looks at me, first time ever in Guatemala. I mean, he'd been here like five hours. And he looks at me and he says, oh, my God, I never want to leave. Right? And I said, welcome to Guatemala. This is it. You're not, you, haven't even, you just got here. But with all that said, he loved it. I mean, he, he went to Lake Atilan, he went to Antigua, but uh, I wasn't with them this week in Antigua. They went there on their own because, you know, I had to come back and do some work. <laughs> but uh, he texted me yesterday and he said, man, I love this place, but I, the, one thing that, the one reason I would never move here willingly is the, it, the roads, exactly what you just said. He goes, I'm, I want to go from Antigua to Pacaya, and it says it's 15 miles, but it's going to take me an hour and a half and that's like probably without traffic. And it's kind of what you're saying, like the road infrastructure and even like getting from here to like Guatemala City from to Antigua, um, how, how long it could take without traffic. But with traffic, it could be like crazy not to go that far. And um, I mean, you kind of understand some places like the mountain roads, you got to go around mountains and things like that. But, but it is kind of interesting. And that could be. But the one thing I noticed in Guatemala City, right at rush hour. At, oh, man, it's crazy. We were just talking about. Um, about that. Now, I've been um, one little innovation I've seen around here is these little electric scooters. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the bird scooters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Bird operates in the US and also here. Uh, I, I come sometimes to work, just download the app. Yeah. You unlock an electric scooter and off you go. And there's a, uh, a, a paths that you can yeah. link one zone to the other because uh, that's gotta, how, how the city You got to be very creative on those paths. Because yeah, once I get over to the reformer, I mean, you could go all the way from zone 14 to, to 13 to 10 to 9 to 4 to 1 pretty easily on those paths. But if I'm over like by the Oakland Mall and I'm trying to get over to the path, it's it, that those five minutes of getting over there, it's like the sidewalks are off and, you know, I've, I got to dart into the street where I'm kind of taking my life into my own hands for about 30 seconds. But, um, but yeah, if they could just figure out a little bit of that, uh, maybe the sidewalks. And the other infrastructure in the, around the country, I think it would be great. By the way, it's it's funny because it it made me think as I as I was in this country for a while and traveling around. It really did make me think and reflect on you know my own experiences growing up in the U.S. Like, wow, I take for granted like great infrastructure. And we even complain about infrastructure in the U.S. 
uh, all the time, but transportation of not just people, but goods, yes. commerce, right? So, so that would be something, you know, so the, so the rule of law, tr uh, transportation infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, and I guess just, uh, perhaps even some legal innovation we, we have to incorporate ourselves abroad because there's no legal uh, uh, figure i don't know if that's a, no legal uh, no exempted limited partnership which is the legal form that you have to take if you want to be a vc fund it's non-existent uh, here so you like an llc because uh, it's it's a a version of the llc because it has a gp company and a lp company both together form an exempted limited partnership but you you can incorporate here because it doesn't exist. That's something that Panama has done well, like becoming a financial hub for for the uh, for Latin America. Uh, but something that definitely could also needs needs improvement here, and um, and and yeah, like, like like the roads, like you say, it's a goods uh, as well as um, as as people. Uh, so much so that I mean supposedly they're going to build this new road here or there and then midway through uh, it's a scandal because the government stole away like a large chunk of the or, or they hired a corrupt uh, other company to execute the the works or the road fell apart years later so much so that now it's a, a, a private road called the vas i don't know if you you've uh, heard about that one but it's linking hubs and hubs uh, uh, in a private highway because somebody saw the need and God bless them. I hope they succeed. And maybe that's the way we're going to get to go from point A to point B without driving through insane traffic through yeah. a privately owned system of uh, highways. Yeah. And the other aspect of the traffic is, um, you know, I was I was looking into this and in the, in the last 10 to 20 years, the amount of people that can actually afford and own vehicles has gone up dramatically. So in some sense, it's a symptom of progress that you have so many more people on the roads with their own vehicles that they, you didn't 10 or 20 years ago. And actually I was looking at, it's almost, even if your infrastructure was like trying to keep up, it's very difficult to keep up with that amount of progress. You should study yeah. the state of Florida because somehow we went from like 1 million people in 1945 to about 22 million just 60, 70 years later um, in one state. And the infrastructure, I don't know, somehow was kept up. Yeah. Also, lack of public transportation. Mm -hmm. you, you, if you are somebody living in uh, like a part of the city where it's not easily accessible by public transportation, which is almost non-existent, or you uh, risk having a bad experience, uh, you most people have to buy a car, import a crash card from the states, fix it up here, or own a motorcycle and move that way, and that creates traffic, right? That could be another thing to work on, like public transportation. You know, my, my solution is I sold my car and I only ride a motorcycle. Oh, yeah. yeah. But how does that work in the rain? <laughs> Those days, I debate whether I take an Uber and yeah. go through traffic or just wear a raincoat and wet my shoes and well, get the, there quickly. In the year or so I lived here, I've never, I don't own a car, I've never driven a car. I either uh, take Uber, scooters, walk, whatever. So I think it's a, it's a possibility. Okay, I got two last questions for you. One's a fun one. And I think this is uh, one I asked some of our mutual friends uh, what I should ask you about. And I thought it would be something business, but they said, they said, um, Fernando is a man of great taste, food, in food, in wine and watches. So what has made you passionate about some of these things, Fernando? <laughs> Who was this, Mike or what? Oh, oh my I'm God. Not gonna, I'm not going to say uh, 
I don't know. I I I, I, I started meditating a, a, a while back, not, not not too long ago, but I guess just the experience of being present helped me. Gained, um, I gained a sense of appreciation towards when I have a meal. It's not just uh, something that's there that I should gobble down, but somebody, and maybe it's even the influence of my French friends from the bistro that we went to eat because they take that thing seriously. But somebody, you know, put a lot of effort into doing this. Somebody spent years trying to create this wine, uh, to uh, cared for the grapes, brought it. Through uh, barrels of uh, of uh, you know wood or or concrete whatever method they desire, all to present to you uh, you know this this uh, achievement, uh, same as a watch, which could also be an investment right. <laughs> in this inflationary times. But you know the the respect for the craft and into the final product that it, I think it's more than just a, a snobby or or materialistic thing that you could pursue, but just respecting somebody doing something with such passion that they try to put their best effort there and you appreciating it presently in the experience. That's great. By the way, speaking of watches, I had a vintage watch dealer on this podcast somewhere in the episode 73 range or something, but that was my friend, Eric Wind, Wind Vintage. He is like now one of the like well-known uh, vintage watch dealers. And I, by the way, I knew Eric when he was in college and was a political science major. So if I ever thought he was going to be a vintage watch dealer and like does very well in this, in this category, he's even been in documentary. So you got to look him up. But anyway, um, just giving you a shout, Eric, uh, if you're listening, but I have one last question and that is what advice would you give to aspiring entrepreneurs in general and also in particular to those here in Guatemala? Just uh, don't give up. I mean, it seems impossible and, and even culturally uh, we're biased in, in Latin America to not have a high tolerance for failure. Just ignore those signals and if you truly are uh, passionate about what you're doing and good at it, because the two have to go together, uh, you know, go for it. See uh, what doors you can knock on. There, here's our door, and we can open many other doors for people like that. And, and just know that if you do, uh, you know, devote yourself to an endeavor, to creating value out of an idea, to creating a product out of nothing, uh, and allocating resources that way, it's really a, a positive-sum game. It's it's not a, a, a zero-sum game. It's not a trade where somebody wins and somebody loses. Uh, the founder is winning. Society in general uh, is winning. People who invested in the founder are winning. Uh, so I think there's uh, uh, not... Uh, much more noble uses for finance or where to devote your life than, than being a founder. So uh, go for it if you have the talent, the idea, and, uh, and the passion for it. That's great. And, and one, one, one add-on to that is, what would it take if somebody w was starting a startup here in Guatemala, what would it take for, for them to gain your interest in, in, uh, in Invariantes possibly investing in them? Got it. And it's, it's a, maybe a generic answer, right? But uh, uh, you know, every fund has their own formula. But you, you divide it mostly into four buckets if, if they're attacking a massive market. Because again, every investment has to be a potential fund returner. And if you're not attacking a massive market, your sales are not going to grow 
to the scale uh, that you need for that, uh, you know, multiple on sales to be such that you can go from a valuation at the initial stages all the way to an exit and that investment could be a fund returner uh, without getting into the math but right. I hope that makes sense uh, have uh, your own team in-house developing every part of the solution uh, and, and have the chops and also be able to communicate it eloquently because you're going to have to again to sell to uh, investors to sell to clients and to the talent that you want to recruit uh, have a clear understanding of uh, the unit economics, how you plan to, to make money, and, uh, and finally uh, ha have a valuation that's uh, you know, realistic. Yeah. And be ethical as well. Uh, you know, uh, we've seen more than our share of companies that go down, not because of a lack of a good product, but because um, misuse of resources for personal uh, effects or, or uh, you know, straight up manufacturing of sales. You know, honesty is uh, also the, uh, one of the qualities that we look for. It's impossible to test, but you kind of get a sense of all those four. And if you check those check boxes, it's a good chance that we end up investing. That's great. Well, that's great advice. Probably some stuff you learned at UFM too, but they always talk about ethics, right? Not just, uh, not just you know, the market economics and all that, but, but the, the ethics uh, and the paying attention to that. Well, Fernando, I just want to say thank you for being an agent of innovation here in Guatemala and for being on the Agents of Innovation podcast. For those listening and watching, uh, we're on YouTube, Apple, Spotify. I, I always ask if people can subscribe to the podcast, share it, like it, comment. Actually, comment right now, whatever uh, platform you're listening to this on, because we'd love to hear what you thought of this interview. And I uh, really appreciate everybody listening. And thank you, Fernando, for your time today. No, thank you for uh, becoming almost an ambassador for Guatemala and for having me. And, uh, you know, our doors are open to you and to your listeners. Great. Thank you. Hi, I'm Francisco Gonzalez, host of the Agents of Innovation podcast, and I'm in one of my favorite parts of the world, Guatemala City, with Fernando Pontaza. He is the co-founder and managing general partner of Inveriantes, which is the first venture capital fund in Guatemala, founded in 2015. Fernando, we're looking forward to a great conversation with you here on the Agents of Innovation podcast. Yes, I'm honored to be here, and thanks for coming over to Guatemala and uh, experiencing it firsthand. Well, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, and be the first for episode 121 of the Agents of Innovation podcast.